My name is Max Thornberry. You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, hello. My name is Andy Subasa-Field. I'm a news reporter with the Daily Emerald, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. This is where the important discussions happen, and we keep delivering. A big welcome to our listeners around the world. Thank you very much for joining us. We're here to talk about the blackface incidents which occurred at the University of Oregon during the course of this month. Almost two weeks ago, three teenagers came to the university wearing the controversial makeup. And before that, your law professor Nancy Schertz wore it during a private Halloween party. Shirts immediately came under fire by the campus community after someone, uh, we still do not know who, released a photo of her in her costume to local media. She wrote an email to the community condemning the act, and 23 of her fellow law faculty called for a resignation. She's currently on paid administrative leave as campus office of affirmative action and equal opportunity investigates whether actions are a violation of university policy. I'm joined here by two guests, Dr. Edwin Coleman, a retired UO professor who taught at the university since 1972, during which he started the Ethnic Studies Department. He was previously a graduate student during the late 60s. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. And I've got Andre Lightsey Walker, University of Oregon senior, majoring in philosophy. What up? <laughs> Delighted to have you both on. All right, Dr. Coleman. So just to give some background, Dr. Coleman wrote a column in the Register Guard expressing disapproval on the campus community's response to Shirt's actions. You do not think that she should be asked to resign, am I correct? That's correct. Okay. Why? Why do you feel that way? Because I think it was a knee-jerk reaction. Professor Shirts did what she did in response to her daughter, who's a med student at Brown University. Her daughter called her, told her that there was only one black med student in her class. And she also sent Dr. Schertz the book, Black Men in White Coat, and which Dr. Tweedy, who wrote the book, was explaining the discriminatory practices that happens amongst doctors, black doctors, throughout the country. And, there, and some of the reasons why. And so she was responding to her daughter and to the book that she had read by Dr. Tweedy. She also uh, had in her mind that this would be a teaching experience for those who were invited to her home. I talked to Dr. Schertz, to Professor Schertz, and she, through tears, crying and everything, told me that she was preparing for the dinner, for the event, and she didn't have time to think about what was going on, and so that's why I thought it was a knee-jerk reaction. The person who took the photograph should be whipped, putting it online, Mm. and possibly the person who put it online had some extraordinary reason, either because of disliking her and also for reason to embarrass her and so forth. Also, Professor Schertz, throughout her whole teaching life, has been anti-racism, anti-sexism. All of her research and everything, her teaching, has been to try to bring an understanding about what's happening in this country. And of course, what she did, she said she made a mistake. 
she made a mistake by not checking first uh, or thinking about what what her what she did was going to be so explosive. In her mind, it was kind of a teaching moment about the lack of black doctors in the United States and how they're treated. So was her costume purposely trying to imitate some of the prejudice towards black people that some of the white characters in the book expressed? Yeah, well, to imitate, I suppose she thought that it would be something as, as a Halloween costume. It wasn't anything to try to embarrass anyone or try to make anyone feel unconscious or something like that. It was a total, total mistake. And I think the response uh, on this campus was totally inappropriate. I'm, I'm so sorry that so many of her colleagues there in the law school decide to take such a knee-jerk reaction. And as, as lawyers or teachers of law, should know that there should be an opportunity for a person to defend herself. That's in the Constitution. What I saw was a shoot and then aim. And that's why I and and hundreds of other people that I have talked to and emailed me, they feel the same way. And I also think that uh, President Schill was poured gasoline on a spark he himself should take the leadership to try to explain and to understand what some of those people who have this kind of knee-jerk reaction to something like this. Back to the costume, though, a lot of people uh, look at blackface as a racist act, it, regardless of the intentions behind or, or, or the story behind the costume or the use of it. Do you feel that just wearing blackface, um, that some intentions could make it not a racist act? Oh, no, no, no. Don't get me wrong. I said that in my thing. I said I was taken aback by that when I first saw that. And, of course, that would be a response from anyone uh, in this day and age. And so I didn't, I, I found it immediately to be offensive, but I had to go beyond just the photograph and go beyond that and go in depth to see what was behind the whole story. I like to get the facts before I start condemning people about certain things. Andre, yes, well, sir. what did you feel after you saw the photograph of Nancy Shirts in that costume? Um, I think the initial reaction for anybody seeing it is shock, right? Um, you see a professor, somebody in power in an institution, behaving in a way that might not be socially acceptable um, in, in the public sphere. So I was taken aback initially. What does it say kind of about the campus climate that, um, you know, having a professor wear blackface to you? So to kind of further this question, it really comes down to an to a understanding of intent. Fundamentally, I, I, I agree 100%. I think the issue is that we have people in leadership positions that don't recognize the problematic nature of, of this action, right? So even if her intent was seated in, in, in bringing recognition to her guests that black men are not represented in the medical field, when she puts on blackface and goes to a party, that doesn't add black men to the medical field, right? That's kind of her... That's, that's a white woman putting on blackface and pretending to be a doctor, a black doctor, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't really f fix that void that's there. So um, even if she is trying to bring attention to an issue, I don't think that's necessarily the best approach. 
Do you think that you agree with the 23 faculty who've called for her to resign? Um, so that's a whole nother, I need to talk to this individual. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's really when it comes down to intent. Like, was she so ignorant that she thought it was beneficial to do blackface? And like, that's something like, do we want professors that are so ignorant of the issue that they, they see doing blackface as a remedy for this history of oppression? I, I don't know if that, would you want your professors to do that? Would you want your professors to be the people that, that don't have a deep enough understanding of these issues that they will do this in a positive manner? I don't know. I, I don't want, I don't want my teachers. I'm not going to teach my kids um, about oppression by imitating an oppressed group. Back to you, um, Dr. Coleman. In your column, you mentioned back in the 40s in the South, you'd actually gone to minstrel shows. Yes. Um, what were your what was your kind of reaction um, to those shows and what was your father and your attitudes towards him as I mentioned my father was a uh, was uh, a friend of a violin player who played in the pit that this these were traveling minstrel shows and most of the shows were black just like black performers in the 1870s 80s most of these traveling shows were black men in black faces. It was started by a white man parroting a, 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 a crippled black person they saw on the road, and he thought the, he had a, a congenital defect in his foot. And this guy, who was an itinerant actor, saw this and then started to imitate him and put together a one-man show and put on old clothes and old shoes that were too big and a top hat. And this was the beginning of what was called Jim Crow. You jump down, spin around, spin around on your toe, jump down, spin around, and you jump Jim Crow. Mm. That's how this all started. And he was so good at it, he made money. And then other people started to imitate him, other white actors and so forth. This became the the greatest form of entertainment in the United States in the 1800s. There were traveling minstrel shows everywhere, all over the country. It finally formed into what was called not only just the blackface minstrels, it became the Christian minstrels, it became all these different companies started their own minstrel shows. But it developed into a format of where men sat around, eight to 10 men, sat around in a circle, semi-circle, with two end men. One was called Mr. Bones on one end, and the other was called Mr. Tambo. Mr. Bones played Bones, you know, the-, the Dominoes? Pardon? You said Bones? Bones. Okay. And, and the other played Tambo. Tambourine is an African instrument, it was called the tambo, and so it was Mr. Bones and Mr. Tambo. And in the middle of this was always a white man. He was Mr. Interlocutor, and he was sort of like the host of all of these. And he would call, uh, and the end men were the most popular, they were the most funny, and they, they answered the most funniest joke. They were the most talented. And he would ask Mr. Bones, uh, who was that woman I saw you with last night? And Mr. Bone would jump up and say, that was not my wife, that was a woman I love. And all would shake their tambourines and 
and he'd go back and forth, back and forth. Mm-hmm. My point is that this became the dominant form of entertainment throughout the country. There were at least 10 or 20 more uh, companies. Most of the companies, uh, they evolved into white men wearing cork, black cork. And then, but there were also black men who also wore black cork in order for, because black people come in different shades. There's the white, the bright, and damn near white. Brown, you stick around. Black, you get back. So, and even in the in early 19th, uh, 20th century, there were two men, William Walker and also, I forget the, the other man. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll get back to him. But they had to wear blackface because the other man had fair skin. So in order to perform, he had to wear blackface and the black man had to wear blackface. They were called the chocolate dandies. Hmm. They sang, they danced, they were the most popular duo on the, on the entertainment circuit in the 19, early 1900s. All of this is the same. My dad took me. It was a traveling tent show, like, like hundreds of others that traveled throughout the country, especially in the South. Oh, it was the great form of entertainment. That's where, after the show, my dad, we went backstage to talk to his friend who played violin. And I saw the violins, and the man looked at me and said, you want to play this thing, boy? I said, yeah. And so that's how I got hooked on playing the violin at five years old. But my point is that this was a form of entertainment. Black people didn't, there was no objection to this because this was entertainment. This also provided black performers, black people who were in entertainment, to have a job, to be seen. But that's not necessarily what I'm saying, that it was a great thing. But out of this experience, I witnessed several black minstrels that my dad took me to. There were no problems with black people in those days. And so it only involved to, you know, a lot of this as we go and we modernize our, our society. So that's how my experience with the blackface minstrels. What do you think about that? I'm struggling to, I mean, I can understand it as a societal event, like going to a movie, um, things you're allowed to do. But I think historically, it sounds like they did perpetuate cultural narratives of black people. The way you were saying that, like, first of all, you had the interlocutor, right? So that is the dominant white male figure that is in control over the the other group, right? And it's kind of the translator between the group and the audience. And that the the black people were supposed to speak in a certain way and, uh, 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 you know... A, a dialect. A specific dialect, exactly, right? right? That it, it's, it's, that's hyper... Um, I don't know. It, it just seemed extra, right, in a sense. And so I think that that is, like, even if it was allowing these people to participate in entertainment and be seen, I think the drawback is... Uh, the perpetuation of problematic cultural narratives. May I say this? Yeah, please. That as we look back in history, it was what it was. Absolutely. We can always we can always look back and say 
hey, that didn't look right or that didn't sound right. I'm looking at some of the some of the things that we as black people do today that still perpetuate some of the same thing that's going on uh, that went on back in, in the day. So I don't think we have moved forward, but we haven't gotten out of that whole kind of stereotypical thing that that uh, that's uh, uh, actions and words that stereotype black people today. It offends, offends me sometimes to see black people doing some of the things we do today in society. Absolutely, that's that's all people, right? And right. Um, But how do we move forward? We have to look at those historical mistakes and say, okay. I mean, I think the sport of basketball is a perpetuation of these cultural narratives for, exactly. you know, okay, right? You exactly. hear what I'm saying? So, um, but it's like, how do we move forward? I guess it's, we have these conversations to start. Well, one of the things that, that you mentioned basketball, we look at commercials. How are black people stereotyped? And even people who are in the business of marketing mm-hmm. black people, they will also use a black stereotype to get to make the money for the commercial. When you look at commercials today of young, young, young black boys especially, uh, you see white kids and Asians walking around with laptops and things like that. And what do you see black boys doing? They got a, a bloody basketball yeah. that they're bouncing around. And we see these these stereotypes that keeps perpetuating. And I look at and what also bothers me talking about today, you know, like football players especially, they make a touchdown. And what do they do? The black players do? They have to dance. They do some of the same dancing and carrying on as we saw in the minstrel shows. Yes. But that's also because they become reduced to that is their one moment of um you know what I'm that's when when they score touchdowns, those white owners are making money oh, off yeah. of them, oh, right? Absolutely. So it's like it's a subsidiary right. that's byproduct. Like, it's like rap. A lot of the rap music that started. A lot of the black uh, musicians or singers or rappers, they make some money, but who's making the real money? Who's making the real money? Right. Mm-hmm. Our professors, our 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 law professors are making the real money, right? And and as a student, I I'd want them to recognize what that does to me like that makes me not want to attend the university of like i'm i could be a candidate for the u of o law school and if i i recognize that that there's professors at this the highest tier are trying to remedy the the black issue in the united states through blackface i'm i'm terrified professor coleman you're you're aware of the 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 blacks in task force demands i've read them yes Mm -hmm. they had a rally recently Yes, I read it in the Emerald. They want all these demands to be met by the administration. What are your kind of thoughts on, on these demands? You always make demands, and you make impossible demands to get some of them. Mm-hmm. And that's through negotiation, that's through union lobbying and everything, everything. You make impossible demands, and then you'll get some of the things you want. As, as someone who's taught at our school for a long time, do you feel that these demands are would, would benefit the, the campus? Would they benefit the campus? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them would. And I mentioned the impossible demands. I, I mentioned, I want to say that some of the impossible demands that I've read that, well, I think I already said this at one time, uh, where you have uh, the demand to have X amount of black professors and so forth mm-hmm. and so on. Now, where do we get those? 
my I think in the paper, I think I talked to you about mm, yeah, this. I talked about it. Mm. Is that <clears throat> we don't have enough black PhDs in the pipeline to spread out throughout the United States. And those people who do, uh, do, do have the PhDs to do the kinds of things that, uh, that most black people want, students want, we don't have the money here. Where do we get the money? Uh, uh, but we don't have enough blacks in the pot. And, th and it starts at middle school. Absolutely. That's where Absolutely. it starts. And if we don't have our black children, men, boys, and girls, to start this pipeline mm -hmm. to go mm -hmm. to get into college in the first place, into college, and once they, then, then they, they may not want to be uh, a part of a black studies, a black studies group. Now, when back in the day, <laughs> when we had a, a number of black students who was demanding um, a black black studies department, we had four black faculty hmm. four hmm. if you don't have black faculty to teach black studies what are you going to wind up with i taught at chico state for three years and at that time i i was i my 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 master's degree was at at san francisco state and that's when i had left there and the year after I left, there was this big demand for black studies at San Francisco State. Big demand. People marching and all of that kind of stuff. But what happened though, they got the black studies for some, some way. But then it started to erode, erode and erode. So when I was teaching at Chico State, some students, well, uh, there was only 10 <laughs> black students, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and three of them were Africans mm -hmm. at Chico State, and some, and, but people were white professors. We need to start a black studies program. Mm -hmm. I said, no way will I be a part of it. No way. I don't teach black studies programs, classes. I was, I was director of the theater. That was my, mm. that's my undergraduate and graduate work is in theater. Mm. And so I didn't know any, I didn't teach sociology, black history. They didn't have anything like that. So who's going to teach that? Mm -hmm. They were going to, they were going to say, well, we'll, we'll do, I said, no way, Jose. I will not do that. I will not condescend to try to teach a black studies program when I'm the only black professor on campus. And that's your qualifying factor, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so anyway, that's, that's, that can be very problematic hmm. here even at the University of Oregon. Hmm. You have to have a considerable black faculty to teach black program mm -hmm. 
and and what what is at the end of that? So you get your degree in black studies, and what happened in San Francisco State and black studies throughout the country, they all folded mm-hmm. because when they got their degree in black studies, where are they going to go? They have to go some a uh, different level. Uh, if you're in sociology, you have to you have a, a direct line into what area of sociology you want to go to. Uh, same thing with black history. Hmm. So you have to, well, you're going to be, uh, you're going to j- just teach black history at all. And most of the time, and even at black colleges and universities, many of those, they don't have black studies mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a limitation to where it will take you. It's okay to take those classes and all of that. Like we, we've always had a, a black history classes here at the university when I first came. It was taught by a white man, eminent scholar in, in Negro history, and that's mm-hmm. what he taught. Yeah. And we've had a succession of black uh, professors who taught history. Mm-hmm. None yeah. of them, not all of them taught black history because that yeah. was not their specificity mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 in their studies. Okay. And so, and of course, the last we had Dr. Um, Taylor, he became department head and he taught African history and black history, but mainly uh, the history, uh, black history in the Northwest. Mm. That's a very specific history. Yes. <laughs> and he's an eminent scholar. And what happened to him, he was lured by the University of Washington. Washington gave him a big-time raise mm-hmm. of where he'd only have to teach one seminar a year. Mm. He, had, he, he had four graduate research assistants mm. and almost double his salary. Mm. Now, what would any, <laughs> any, any man would, would turn down? Yeah. You know, to stay here at the University of Oregon, which he'd love to be here. But Money what are you going to do? You, ha- you, just, you, have to, you have to follow, you know, your scholarship. Capitalist systems, right? <laughs> yeah, well, well <laughs> yeah, that too. There you go. No, it's right. real. Andre, what, what are your thoughts on about the Black Student Task Force demands? I think it's very good that they're demanding things. Mm-hmm. As black students in an underrepresented community on campus, I think there are things that we need i'm i'm with you 100 on that we need to get engaged in the middle school oh, yeah. right and that's um i actually work with the multicultural center and i'm holding an event for freshmen and sophomores to start come on campus and find out the processes involved with college and all that stuff but yeah, yeah it's crucial because these people these are groups that aren't even thinking that they're eligible they're not intelligent enough they're not nobody says you can do this right and so i think the University of Oregon, as a brand, the O as a brand, needs to reach out to these groups. There are black people in Oregon. Mm-hmm. We got to get those black students, young children, thinking about wanting to be ducks and contribute to this society mm-hmm. through education. Yeah. Then we will have the the, the PhDs. The pipeline. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But but on the other hand, we also have like I'm I'm gonna graduate with with two degrees and gonna go get my master's and hopefully my PhD and I'm thinking about okay Oregon what would make me come to Oregon and then we have teachers and professors that are that would make me feel as a faculty member not 
not safe or respected if they're doing blackface, right? What, why do you mean not safe? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. um, I think I think psychologically safe, right? So if if my if my let's say I'm a professor here at the University of Oregon and my yeah. and my peers. Um, think the best way to remedy the history of social oppression and, and the lack of wh- black men in white coats is to use Halloween as a tool for sharing that message. I don't know if that's that's not how I communicate change, right? Well, what do you what do you say if your peers? You mean like one person? You you feel that way if one person do this instead of you know all I feel you versus all of that I mean it would make me feel uncomfortable with that person's in the room at the very least well, well no I mean you know with you as a you as a colleague you teach as a teacher and mm-hmm. all of that stuff mm-hmm. that one person should should I don't think should make you you know make you feel unsafe and all that kind of stuff because one person out of th- uh, over 2,000 Professors. Yeah, I, I remember you. You were saying when the when the three teenagers came to campus, people had just come out of the Black Student Union uh, meeting, mm-hmm. and you, that you know of, um, and and they they felt really unsafe at that point. Um, you were saying, you know, what what was right, and so it's kind of two different. It's all about about intent. That's what this fundamental discussion is surrounding. Is like what the people are feeling, but there were some some teenagers on campus that had done blackface right after Trump was elected president. Right. Right. And so um, it makes you feel unsafe that these 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 events or this event probably wouldn't have happened had the election not happened the way it did. You know, right. They're kind of connected like, right. OK, so these people are all around me. And now that they have a victory, they're ready to come out the woodworks and really say, hmm. right. I see you watch your place, boy. Right. Essentially, so. they're doing that already. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And so um, that's that's the feeling of safety, and and for me, it's just psychological safety. As, okay. as a student on campus, you know, I'd want my teachers to make better decisions if they're making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, essentially, and they're teaching me. I just want to, I I, I want to feel like they they understand me, and mm. and any teacher that that understands the the black struggle in the United States wouldn't use blackface as a method to try to to try to heal that wound well if she was out on the street doing this that would be one thing i can i could really understand Mm -hmm. but she was doing this in the privacy of her own home with invited guests invited guests and so i see the she missed she made a mistake of doing it in the first place but she was not that was not her intent and I think intent yeah. is very important, right? right? Mm-hmm. And and just to give you a little um, another example, let's say that um, there's another professor on campus, and it's Halloween, and they are are dressed up as an emaciated Jewish person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as a recognition of the Holocaust, right? I don't mm-hmm. think even in the privacy of their own home, we'd feel some type of way about their choice of representation of this issue, right? right. Can I can I also please, say please if there were if there were, I don't know if there were black people mm-hmm. invited to her party or not. Now yeah. that would be another thing. Right. But as but if the Jewish people, they are white, and so. <laughs> right. There's no. You can't. You can't automatically right. see exactly. Right. But it's still the same fundamental. Right. I, I totally understand. You know. And so. I understand. And yeah, absolutely. She probably didn't invite black people. I don't think many black people would go to that party mm. and say, oh, hey, like, mm. I really like your costume. Tell yeah. me more about it. Yeah. But 
Mm. It is what it is, and she's chilling I, on leave, and she's still getting money, and like, well, she should. And, uh, yeah, she's so. also she's also suing. Whatever happened? Mm. Whatever happened to the uh, the Constitution? Whatever happened to uh, you're innocent until proven guilty? Hey, that's and so she's suing, and I I told her I would contribute to your legal fund. So she said, I don't need it. I don't have, I need the money. So, uh, and some lawyers in Eugene wouldn't take her case. Mm. So she went to Portland. There you go. And mm. so she's got people. She said, I don't want to quit or don't want to leave the, te the teaching. I have too much invested. I have too many positive things to say about anti-Semitism, anti-LGBT. And you see, one of the things I think that's happening for some of her colleagues, I think they don't like her. Mm. I think that's... And, and so that's a whole nother... That's a whole <laughs> nother... As we used to say, that's a whole nother something else. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and so and that, that may be a contributing factor mm. to why they were so eager, but they can't fire her. She has tenure... And you have to go through the legal process, and that's and that's that's what that's what the Constitution says. Right. Okay. Yeah. So. And I just want to say a closing statement. Yeah. She can sue. Yeah. <laughs> what I want as a student, as a black student on campus, if that is her, if if, if it was to talk about the the oppression of black men in in higher education, I'd want her to talk to me. You know what I'm saying? Not even me individually, but but talk to the students, and that can be that can be the judges for you if you can convince me that that what you were doing was really truly to bring recognition to this issue. Then I'm down. Like, come back, please, and we can talk about a better way to do it. But so so you feel like there there is a there is a way to you know for her to do some reconciliating. Absolutely, with the, with absolutely. She, it's all based on in intent, and yeah. I don't know her. I don't know her, yeah. but I know what she did, and I know how what she did made me feel. Right, and so there's a little gap there. I need sure. to I need to have that conversation, or she needs to be willing to have that conversation with the the, the black students and say, "This is where I'm coming from." Yeah, that's a wrap. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you very much uh, for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you and for thanks. having me. Thank you. Keep following our Emerald coverage as the investigation continues, and the uh, the Black Student Task Force demands continue as well. Thank you very much. This is the Emerald Podcast News Network. Have a good day.